Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. When I lived in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., I paid almost no heed to what my county commission was up to. The federal shadow loomed large, but living so close to a major city like Washington meant D.C.'s rules often mattered a lot more than what Fairfax County did. Now I live in a rural county, a mile and a half from a small city, and I'm suddenly much more interested in what our local county commission is up to. My five county commissioners are a small part of the more than half a million elected leaders in the city and county level in the U.S. Compare that to just 537 at the national level or 18,700 at the state level. Some of those leaders have small towns just like my own. And then on the other extreme, New York City has a municipal budget bigger than all but four states. There's so much intellectual and activist firepower that goes into talking with that 4% of leaders at the state and national level. But who is encouraging free market ideas to the other 96% of elected leaders? Well, today we're going to meet three of those groups, Better Cities, the American City-County Exchange, and the Center for Economic Accountability. I think the work these three groups do is really cool, and it is extremely relevant. Personally, I think that if we're ever going to get back to a system that appreciates market values, but also to a place where neighbors can talk civilly to each other, that work is going to start at the municipal level. So let's get into it. The name of our first group really says it all. It's called Better Cities, and its goal is, yes, you guessed it, to make our cities better. Leaders in the city and county level are the closest to the day-to-day problems of our citizens, and they often seek improvement for their municipalities on pretty limited budgets. It's a place where market-oriented solutions may be most needed, but are too often not circulated. Better Cities is trying to change that. Greg Brooks is president and one of the co-founders of Better Cities. And Greg, why don't you help us understand kind of big picture where where to put Better Cities? Do you, Are you a think tank? Are you a convener? Are you something else? How do you classify it? I would characterize us as a think tank that's uh, the tip of the spear in what I hope will be a movement-wide effort to re-engage the cities. As as, uh, libertarians and conservatives and those of us who care about markets, we've spent more than 50 years preaching the gospel of the local solution being the best solution and the most responsive, and yet we've largely ignored our cities. We have pursued free market solutions in the suburbs and in the country and certainly in the state house where we have outsized leverage. Uh, but there are 97 million people living in our largest cities in America, and I think they deserve good local market solutions as well. And is it those big cities that you're focused on? Is it the top 10 or top 20 metropolitan areas that you're really, when you're say city, is that what you're talking about? So our our headline number is America's 100 largest cities, but we actually communicate 
with mayors and city councils at all cities of 100,000 or more population, and that, that gives us a universe in the U.S. of about 327 cities. Okay, that's pretty good, pretty good universe. So as I understand it, you have two major issues you're focusing on right now because there's, there's no lack of issues. you got to start somewhere, uh, and those are housing and policing. So these are huge issues at cities across the country. Tell us a little bit about how Better Cities is engaging with those two issues. Sure. I, I would characterize those as our headline issues for 2022. Certainly local government and the need for market-oriented reform, liberty-respecting and market-oriented reforms. Uh, it, that's that's a target-rich environment, right? But in, tar- in 2022, we are focusing on primarily on housing and policing precisely because they are issues where we can form coalitions of convenience with groups uh, in the center, uh, special interest groups, and even groups on the left that might disagree with us us on several other issues. uh, On the housing front, we've done a lot of work with groups like Pacific Legal Foundation, Goldwater, uh, and others to develop model ordinances around loosening housing restrictions and our current project called the 1921 project and rolling out uh, later this year is around the 100th anniversary of the federal government coming down from the mountain and essentially saying to cities municipal zoning is a great thing and the the problem with that aside from any libertarian complaints is that zoning was used almost immediately as a, as a tool to keep the poor or the non-white away from uh, the rich or the white. And you will hear people say again and again that those problems have been solved, but our research shows very clearly that there are multi-generational effects on that disparity. Now, I don't wake up every morning wanting to be a social justice warrior. I wake up wanting market-oriented solutions. However, we live in a moment where our political class cares immensely about uh, social justice language and the danger of being tarred with that particular brush. And so if we can co-opt that language with some data to tell cities, look, there are things you can do to counteract these historical wrongs and, oh, by the way, open up your city to more uh, more housing, to less restrictive development, to an incredible boom in economic activity, then that's a path worth pursuing. The Our policing project uh, is called, simply enough, the Municipal Policing Project, and what it does is take a basket of reforms, everything from rolling back qualified immunity and Uh, making it harder for local police officers to seize the assets uh, of uh, uh, a suspect without a conviction and several other things. These are all things that have been pursued at the federal level, at the state level. What we've done is we've created a set of model ordinances that allow local governments to choose their own adventure and choose a local reform path that doesn't involve these extreme uh, rhetorically divisive measures like defunding the police. So who is listening? I mean, you mentioned you're talking to 327 uh, different municipalities. Who are you talking to? And and what are they saying back to you? Are they implementing these ideas? 
The nature of the work is that it's so diffused that if we tried to build a broad grassroots coalition in every city, we, we just never get there, right? And so our focus from day one has been to talk directly to the people who are capable of voting these reforms into action. Our audience, our core audience, I should say, is a universe of about 4,000 local elected officials, mayors and city council members. Uh, we're also expanding into county elected officials and when it's time to engage states and say, hey, your cities may be coming to you for a bailout, for, uh, for uh, some sort of largesse, you should ask reasonably whether they've done X, Y, and Z. At those times, we engage state elected officials as well. But really, our focus has been on the electeds. And we've had great response. You know, one of the, uh, one of the things I was worried about when I started was whether we would reach out into this audience and, and hit either a, a wall of pushback or a wall of silence. And we haven't gotten either. We get people calling us for advice, so much so that we've had to consider and then reject the idea of doing formal consulting for cities. We get solid attendance. Our open rates for our materials are through the roof. And, and I don't, as much as I'd love to take credit for that and say that BCP is being startlingly innovative, I think the reality is nobody's talking to local officials about these issues. The only voice in the room that they hear are local uh, local constituents and special interests who are sort of fair-weather friends. It's a very old story that the Chamber of Commerce loves to be pro-business until one of their members needs a carve-out, right? And so uh, the other group that they hear from consistently, most of them, is their state-based League of Cities, and their playbook is very simple and very consistent. Here's how to get money out of the state capital. Here's how to get money out of Washington. And we are, in a broad sense, counter-programming against that. And I say in a broad sense, we're actually having some fun doing it narrowly as well. When some of the larger states have League of Cities meetings, we get the agenda and then we program mobile ads around their meeting location with alternative messages. Right, that, that uh, essentially tell city council members and mayors it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to wait for the handout. You can fix your problems locally. I think that's incredible. It's it, you're almost like a organization that you know we all have in our communities that are teaching job skills to people instead of to, to move them off of welfare. You're you're kind of the equivalent of that for the the cities and the municipalities. Well, it's like you've read our strategic plan, right? I know. I absolutely know that long-term, we have to catch these people before they become elected officials. Because if, you, if the first time a city council member or a mayor engages with BCP is when they've been in office for five or six years, they may already have been captured by staff. They may already be sort of overwhelmed by the process. But, you know, you give us a couple more years and we will probably move aggressively to try and identify the people most likely to run for office eventually and make sure they're in the loop on municipal policy as well. To wrap up here, I mean, cities are hard to change. There's got all these political factors involved. What does success look like? How do you kind of define that? Well, we're, we're aided at every turn 
by the fact that cities are herd animals. Actually, in surveys, when you talk to large city mayors and you ask them where they get their policy ideas, the number one answer is other mayors. And so success to us is a base hit in a region where there are peer cities and we can reasonably expect another base hit or multiple uh, multiple adoptions of something that we're advancing. It is a fool's errand to go out there and expect that we're going to have such a big idea so perfectly presented that we're going to get hundreds of cities to adopt it at once. But Southern California, where I grew up, is, is my favorite example. If I can get a city in Orange County, California, to adopt something, there's a very, very solid chance that within the next 18 to 24 months, I can pick up another seven or eight cities. And so that's what success looks like to us is is this series of base hits. And because of that, we're partner first. We, uh, we know we can't do this ourselves. And so we make it a point to be the best possible partner within the movement. And I think that's reflected in the, the folks we work with. We're now seeing SPN think tanks approach us about doing regional local government reform efforts on a joint basis and larger organizations like as i mentioned plf uh, but also ij who we're working with on our criminal justice and policing reforms recognize that we can reach an audience they can't and so catch me a couple of years from now and uh, if things are going uh, according to plan we will we will have reignited and reinvigorated a policy and political interest in the right making reform happen in cities. Well, our cities are a big deal, and if we can make them better, uh, that is a win for everybody and, and truly does lift all boats. So, Greg Books, appreciate all, all the work y'all are doing. Thanks for having me. Our next project is similar to Better Cities, but working even more broadly. The American City-County Exchange is an initiative of an organization you've likely heard of, the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. ALEC has worked for decades bringing legislators together and encouraging market-driven legislation in state houses across the country. The American City-County Exchange, or ACE, looks to bring that magic to the half-million municipal officials across the country. Joining me is Andre Cushing, whose resume includes leadership on a town council at the state level in Maine's House and State Senate, and now as a county commissioner. Andre leads the ACE Project when he's not busy doing all of that. Uh, so, Andre, you have served on both sides of this, as we just outlined. What are some of the major challenges that leaders at the city and county level face that folks may not realize, especially folks who spend a lot of time looking at the state and national level. Sure thing. Thank you, Peter, for allowing us to join you on this podcast. I think from my perspective as a public official at the different levels, one of the key areas for me is being able to connect with colleagues who have faced some of these challenges and come up with solutions. Uh, at the legislative level, there are organizations like NCSL, CSG, and ALEC that provide those conduits uh, for policymaking and for developing uh, understandings on how to implement or pass legislation. Local and county officials, while they do have similar organizations, somewhat operate in their own little island. There is not the support staff in many cases. There are certainly not the policy resources that are as readily available. And we feel that ACE 
paired with ALEC, offers a tremendous opportunity for those people who believe in limited government free market solutions to find their footing and find their support through an organization. Well, let's get into the nitty gritty of, of what it does. And actually, maybe very briefly, tell us what ALEC is, just in case somebody isn't familiar with that. But more importantly, what is ACE? How does it kind of use some of the, the tactics of ALEC and the strategies of ALEC to take it down a level? Certainly. So ALEC has been around for almost 50 years. It was started by people concerned that the federal government was overreaching, that state rights and particularly limited government views were being eroded. So through ALEC, you have a unique model where public sector elected officials join with private sector members to discuss trending issues and find policy solutions. We create model policies that are vetted by our organization's board and then made available to legislators to implement. 25% of legislators in this country are ALEC members, and we've had a very successful track record in promoting those principles of limited government and free markets. There were a few local people who were frustrated that there was nothing like that available as a resource for county, school board, and local elected officials. They came to Lisa Nelson, who is a, a very visionary individual who leads ALEC, and said, could you help us grow an organization like this? She saw the value in partnering with folks who had the same free market limited government principles, and so ACE was formed, and over the last few years, we have been working to develop that. As you mentioned in your opening, there's over half a million local and county elected officials in this country. Many, many of them are people that got involved in government out of frustration with what they had experienced and wanted to change that to make government more user-friendly for the public. They don't always know how to do that when they're dealing with bureaucracies that want to grow government and create a larger solution through government services. Our philosophy, very simply put, is if something is in the yellow pages, government probably shouldn't be doing it the private sector already provides a resource. And to that end, folks at the local and county level want to find colleagues who can help them with ideas they've already worked into their towns, cities, and, and county governments. So where has ACE really moved the needle? I mean, are you seeing some places where you're seeing an explosion in some of these free market policy ideas getting implemented at the state or city and county level? Yes. Uh, so for example, we, we host our meetings concurrently with ALEC, and we've brought in, through our connections there, a number of remarkable speakers who have found solutions to something as uh, challenging as the homeless problem. There's a serial entrepreneur who has developed a homeless shelter in southern Utah. She's developed a reduced-fee uh, facility in Salt Lake City for seniors and veterans to be able to live at a reasonable rate. She's developed child care facilities to help people who want to work out of poverty to know that their children will be taken care of. They're opening a 24-7 child care facility in southern Utah to, to help. So we're bringing together serial entrepreneurs and people who have a heart to, to work on these problems 
through our effort to to teach people how this can be done without just government resources. The program I've mentioned in the homeless sector is funded by over 70% private dollars, either from businesses that they operate concurrent with these programs or through private donations. So it's a, a much more flexible model. We're dealing with tax policies that teach bureaucrats and local officials how to reduce the burden and thereby improve the productivity of businesses and incentivize folks to want to invest in their areas. A uh, very wise man that was our governor said, capital goes where it's welcome and it stays where it's appreciated. And we need to teach local and county officials that this is very true. The engine that drives the economy is the private sector. And from that come the tax dollars that provide the necessary government services. Is it more of a challenge to get local leaders to change their mindset that government doesn't have to offer the solution, that they can look elsewhere? Or is it is the bigger challenge actually finding folks like the woman in Utah, those social entrepreneurs who can actually come in and take the place of government, which is, which is harder to find? It's a little bit of both, Peter. Uh, part of the problem is local people are generally part-time policymakers as opposed to some legislatures who have resources and work on a more uh, regular basis in certain key areas. The local guy may one day be dealing with uh, a road infrastructure problem or sewer problems and the next day they're dealing with a homelessness problem or they're dealing with you know requests from the public for recreational services and many times you hand that off to staff members at the local and county level who are good folks but they work within how do we get government to fix this? And what you need is an attitude that says, is there a way to find someone to fix this without creating a government program? So what's next? What's next for ACE? How does it continue to grow? So ACE uh, has been developing through our outreach. We do membership programs around the country in particularly key states where we have strong ALEC support. Uh, frankly, like ACE, we don't have the huge budgets that are afforded by uh, government membership in these organizations. You know, some of the legislative organizations automatically get membership dues for all of their legislators. Uh, NACO, which is the association that I belong to for the counties, that's all tax dollars that pay the dues for that. What we need to do is beef up our staff for more outreach and programs. So if there are folks out there who believe that local officials who are closest to the problem and implement the solutions more effectively than state and local government is where they would like to see free market ideas grow and flourish, we'd encourage them to look to support the American City County Exchange so that we can grow our outreach staff. We have right now uh, two people who work with me in following up with local and county officials that we've met with. We have a policy shop we can use, but there are problems that are sometimes endemic to localities, and we would be grateful for folks to reach out to us so we could share how we would be more effective in developing and growing that base. Well, there's no shortage of opportunities in lots of places uh, that you can go. So glad you're out there. Andre Cushing, appreciate you talking with us today. Appreciate your help, Peter, and I hope you have a good day.
We all love our local sports teams, yet one fact that gnaws on many free market folks is the fact that those teams often play in stadiums built and subsidized with taxpayer money, money that often fails to meet the promised return on investment for taxpayers. But it's more than stadiums. All sorts of economic development gets sold as bringing miracles that never materialize. John Mozina saw an opportunity to try and change this. Building on a resume as a former investigative journalist and doing communications work at Michigan's Mackinac Center, he formed the Center for Economic Accountability back in 2018 to call out these bad deals. So, John, I, I kind of frame this up in terms of stadiums, but what other form do these bad economic development deals take? Oh, it's it's almost hard to narrow it down. Um, you know, we talk about the kinds of tax breaks and abatements and grants and all sorts of subsidy deals that state and local governments hand out across the country. Um, and it's a big collective problem. The best estimate is that it's somewhere probably in the range of 95 to $100 billion, which could cover... Uh, two examples are either the 11 smallest state budgets combined, or that's three to four times the annual bill for federal farm subsidies, just to pick another kind of corporate welfare. Recently, in the past few months, there have been uh, some real high-profile like mega deals that have come out, and, and some of that comes out of the, the fountain of federal money flowing into the states. But um, a whole bunch of states, uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, North Carolina, Texas, West Virginia, Georgia, Kansas, and others have seen these giant eight- and nine-figure deals. Um, two good examples uh, down in North Carolina, they're giving uh, Apple Computer $846 million over 30 years to build a office and research facility there in the Research Triangle. Or here in my home state of Michigan, they're giving General Motors $824 million to build and upgrade some uh, battery and electric vehicle plants, and that's going to be over the next decade or so. Um, and the whole idea of these deals, the way they're sold to the rest of us, is that, oh, well, these are creating jobs. The state is making an investment. They talk about ROI. They talk about job creation. And where that falls down is just the fact that these deals, the evidence is, the research and real-world evidence, is that these deals really rarely change what a company was going to do anyways. And the easiest way to understand that is you just look at the math. You don't have to be a Fortune 500 company CEO to look at these deals. Consider the Apple deal. I said it's you know, $846 million. That seems like a lot of money. That seems like the kind of like price tag that would have a company be like, well, clearly it's worth locating in your state if you're going to offer us that kind of money. The um, thing is, Apple makes more than a billion dollars a day in revenues. And remember, that $846 million is getting spread over the next three decades. So is Apple really going to be moved where to put an important facility by the prospect of an extra less than an extra day's worth of revenues spread out over 30 years? No, of course they're not. It's not going to actually change the decision. Say with GM, the amount of money they're getting from Michigan is somewhere in the range of like two and a half days worth of revenue spread out over the next decade. I happen to be testifying to a Michigan State House of Representatives committee hearing on the day that news broke. And I said to them, I, I made that example. I talked about, look at how small this is compared to the revenues. And I said, you know, no offense, but, but if GM's leadership is actually making decisions to put, to take a plant from where the best place to put it would be and putting it someplace less good just because they're getting that kind of subsidy that is comparatively tiny subsidy to their bottom line, their incompetent decision makers and their shareholders should fire them. But obviously that's not what's happening. Companies are putting facilities the place they think is the best. And then they're going and hitting up politicians for subsidies because it's free money. 
the, sub, the politicians play along because they want to be at the ribbon-cutting ceremonies and then the press releases taking credit to create these jobs. Um, we say all the time, these aren't economic tools. You know, the, the purpose of these deals is really not to create jobs. It's to make voters believe that politicians are responsible for creating jobs. It's the do-something uh, approach to politics to, to, be, to look active. Absolutely. So what is CEA doing to push back on all this? Well, the big challenge in getting good policy reform is that, um, like I said earlier, people believe, the average person believes, that these deals work. Uh, they may not sort of like them, but they generally more or less kind of believe what it says on the package that they're doing, they're, they're creating jobs, that the economy's better. And they worry that if they, their city or state didn't play the game, um, that all the jobs that go someplace else, you hear it all the time from elected officials, oh, I don't want to do this, but we can't unilaterally disarm when our competitors around us are doing it. The point we always make is, is if all you're doing is shooting yourself in the foot, then yeah, unilateral disarmament makes a lot of sense. What, we're really, what we really exist to do as an organization is we don't do um, academic research. There's a bunch of great academic research on this. In fact, I joke, there's, there's about as much of a research consensus that this stuff doesn't work uh, as there was for the idea that, like, smoking is bad for you. Um, you talked about stadiums off the top. University of Chicago came out with a survey of some of the, like, the most eminent economists in the country, including, and I kid you not, seven Nobel Prize winners. And they asked them if they thought stadium subsidies were a good economic idea. And uh, I think it was 83% of them, including all seven Nobel Prize winners, said no. 11% weren't sure, and 4% said yes. I mean, that's about as much agreement as you're going to get from any economists anywhere. So we don't do research. There's plenty of out there. Out there. We work with economists. We talk to them all the time. Um, they are very – many of them are very supportive of our work. They like – you know, they, they can see that this stuff doesn't work. They like the idea of somebody out there sort of weaponizing their work. Um, what we really focus on is changing the way – people think and feel about these deals, about actually trying to create an environment of public opinion that is conducive to policy reforms. We work with folks on the ground around the country in state-based think tanks and other organizations who have that direct connection, whether it's to, to policymakers or, or others uh, at the local level. And some of it's involving coming up with messaging. Some of it's bringing subject matter expertise when you know smaller organizations don't have that, that capability in-house. Uh, sometimes it's frankly, um, you know, this is a topic that really crosses over partisan lines for good or for ill. And sometimes uh, elected officials who, who consider themselves conservative, free market, whatever, fall off the wagon when it comes to this stuff because it's so politically valuable. And uh, sometimes the, the, you know, the folks who would normally be out there uh, holding folks accountable, they just can't politically handle that. Or sometimes it's, it's you know, even something as simple as they've got donors and supporters who are also playing this game. We know there's bad actors mm -hmm. uh, and people invested in this politically on both sides of the aisle. Have you Absolutely. found reception to the fact that these are not valuable on both sides of the aisle? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. This is I, I joke a lot that uh, you can hate and fear big business or you can hate and fear big government, but we could all agree that when the two of them get together, that's the rest of us who get screwed. Uh, we work uh, very closely and very frequently with organizations that come from the left. Um, I remember talking to, to one of them sort of early on. He's like, welcome, you know, we'll, we'll get the money back from the bastards, then we'll fight about what to do with it. Um, obviously, they come at it from a different perspective. We're not going to always be allied on everything. Sometimes we toss a little bit over messaging or whatever. But a good example is right now, um, you know, we're part of a coalition that's doing some very early work and getting some test case uh, legislation introduced 
in states to ban the practice of using non-disclosure agreements where um, elected officials are being asked to vote on deals uh, where they don't even know the identity of the company they're subsidizing, where they don't have all access to all the details of the deal because the Economic Development Agency has signed a non-disclosure agreement, and we think that that's just an unacceptable violation of fundamental uh, government transparency principles, and we're working with organizations left, right, and center on a coalition to, to try to get some uh, legislation passed in states and then spread across the country on that. Have you seen some victories? I mean, do you feel you've moved the needle in some places? It's it's one of those things where it's a slow process. It's I can definitely make some po- give some examples. I mentioned I was uh, testifying to a state House of Representatives um, uh, committee hearing here in Michigan a little while ago, and I was talking about stuff. And then I found uh, from a friend of mine who's a sort of conservative side of things lobbyist that a Democratic legislator uh, had you know, heard some of the things I'd said and was interested in, he said, you know, it seemed like common sense. He didn't understand why he'd never heard that before and asked for a meeting with me. And we were scheduled for a half hour and we ended up taking an hour talking through this stuff. And he's still sort of on the fence, but less so than he was. And he's, he's interested in, okay, well, if we don't get rid of the stuff altogether, if we can't stop these subsidy deals, what can we do to make them less harmful? What can we do to put more guardrails, more transparency? So, um, you know, we talk about, and it's part of a model of change, we talk about transparency and accountability and then reform, that it's going to be a real hard sell from an Overton window perspective to get folks to come in and just ban these deals overnight. So, you know, like I said, $9,500 billion industry. But if we can start with getting people to want to know more, we can start holding them accountable. And then from that point, we can move on often to reform. But there have been, there have been some good movements uh, down in Texas. There was a subsidy bill that, or a subsidy program that, uh, thanks to some really good investigative journalism down there, didn't get uh, renewed here in Michigan. There was a, uh, another one, the same thing, that, that bill was up for renewal, and it didn't happen. Unfortunately, like I said, the flood of federal COVID money has really uh, made it hard for a few people to say, well, we don't have money for this anymore because there's just money for that out there. Well, I think what you're doing is really important. It's an issue that's underappreciated, and I think your point is well made that there's a lot of research on this. What we need now are some action players and some people to really connect the dots and message on it and, and tell the story. And, and thanks to your good background in journalism and, and communications, you obviously uh, have the ability to do that. So, John Mazina, keep up the good work. Thank you, Peter. So, are you ready to go sit in on a city council meeting now? Well, whether or not you will, I am glad to know that Better Cities, the American City-County Exchange, and the Center for Economic Accountability are out there engaging, connecting, and educating our local leaders. One reason I'm so excited to share this particular slate of groups is that they all work together so well. Each one has a particular focus, and each needs the other. And, frankly, they need a lot of other groups that are working out there as well. And we need all of them to be successful. Advancing the ideas of free markets and free people takes a multitude of groups working at every level, focusing on their strengths and collaborating wherever possible. Want to support the work of one of these groups? We've linked to their websites on our podcast page at donorstrust.org podcast. You can also jump to the show notes for this episode from there as well. Thank you for listening. You know, we make this show to help you learn more about the incredible efforts going on around the country to advance the ideas of limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise. Those are the ideas core to our work at Donors Trust and to the donors that we work with every day. 
If you share those values and want to see your philanthropy used to maximum impact, we'd love to work with you. Visit DonorsTrust.org and you can request some more information. Or just keep listening. We will be back with another episode in a couple weeks. Do subscribe so it goes straight to your podcast player of choice. And let's talk more soon.